You're listening to the Own the Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from C-Link interviews experts on how SME developers and contractors can transform their business through intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Own the Build podcast with Paul Hemming. The title of today's episode is How to Manage a Design Team. And I am delighted to introduce Martin Prince Parrott, who is an award-winning architect and a development director for Suburban Workshop. Hi, Martin. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Very, very well. Tell me, where are you sat right now? Uh, sat at home, doing a bit of working from home, as most people are at the moment. My home is in... Well, I'm pleased to say my home is in Leamington Spa in the West Midlands. To yes. those who are familiar, it's, uh, yeah, West Midlands. Uh, to those who are familiar, it's uh, a really nice Georgian spa town in Warwickshire. So if you want to visit or anyone wants to stop by, you can say hi. It is a really nice town. And keen listeners to this podcast will know about Leamington Spa because that's where I was born. So everyone <laughs> listening clearly knows about Leamington Spa. Right? <laughs> Question for you, Martin. Seeing as we're on, seeing as we're on Leamington Spa, yeah. What so Leamington Spa is is Royal Leamington Spa. Quite, yeah. There is only one other ro- royal town in England. Do you know where it is? Uh, Cheltenham. No, that's it's a not spa Cheltenham. town. God, I, I'm just gonna sound. No, I'm gonna sound really sad here. But it's that's Cheltenham Spa. It's Royal Tunbridge Wells. Really? Yeah, it's the only one. I thought there'd be loads. Who gave them that? Victoria. I don't know, but it should it should it should just be Leamington. Ah, uh, we've reached the extent of your knowledge <laughs> on the topic. It didn't take long, did it? It really did not take no. long. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I've seen other royals, but um, yeah, no, happy to be corrected. Um, I defer to your wisdom on the subject. Oh, brilliant! Well, you're the first person to have ever uttered those words, so I will take that. So <laughs> you're from Leamington, which is great. We've spoken before, and last week's show. We invited onto the show for a great episode, actually, Ben Channon of Ekist. Oh, he's wonderful. And yes, I did pronounce that correct this week. He's wonderful. And Ben told me, I said to him, is there anyone interesting who you know in your network who you think I should speak to, Ben? And he said, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Martin Prince Barrett, but he is very, (laughs) very interesting. I said to him, I'm ahead of the game here. I'm already speaking to the man. So... Very high expectations here, mate. No, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to Ben. He's um, what he's done. Obviously, we're, we're we'll get onto it. But both architects who grew sort of thoroughly dissatisfied with the way the role kind of is at the moment, and just really followed our passions into trying to make the built environment better for people and putting our money where our mouths are. So he. You know, what he did at um, Sale and the books that he's written, I've been fortunate enough to to review some of them. He's the real deal, and he, he really walks the walk and talks the talk. So, uh, yeah, to be suggested by Ben is um, it's encouraging. Yeah, such a charming guy as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's lovely. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, well, uh, you see, for a man like Ben's stature to be uh, recommending you, Martin, this is going to be one hell of an episode, I'm sure of it. So, without further ado, can you explain a little bit more about yourself your experience your history and what you do so 
I guess if I describe it as a bit like a journey, I'll start where I am and I'll start with how I got here. So uh, obviously currently development director for Suburban Workshop, which is uh, my own development firm. And the core of Suburban Workshop is really is really two things, which are effectively a proxy for more more rich things, but ESG is, is at the core and also lifestyle. And you can probably reasonably ask what do what do those two things have to do with development? I think ESG as to what it has to do with development is becoming clearer and clearer. And I think we'll touch on that in the podcast. Lifestyle, I think, is a recognition of two things. The first is to use the Kabuzian uh, phrase, which is that the home is a machine for living. I've never quite liked it because I don't like the idea of machines, but the core of that idea is that where you live should really serve the kind of lifestyle you want to lead. And so what we do and what it means in practice is right at the beginning of the development process, when we're doing feasibility, we're doing the initial appraisal, we're thinking about who's going to live here, um, how they're going to live here, and if there are any obstacles to their quality of life, what can we do through design, arrangement, massing to reduce those difficulties, really? So that's how they sit at the core. Fascinating. I just, we'll get on to ESG later, I think. So so that's kind of where I am at the moment. But I started, uh, I started in property as an architect and did that for about eight years. Really, really fortunate to work at some amazing practices um, in Birmingham and in London. I've worked on virtually every kind of building with the exception of airports and seaports and ports of all kinds, really. Um, I've worked on the English National Ballet, the National Royal Arboretum, uh, which was long listed for the Sterling Prize, London City Island, which is a project I spent almost two years on. Um, incredibly proud of it. You know, thousands Canary of Wharf, that one. That is near Canary Wharf. So it's just uh, on the DLR. It's, uh, I think it's just after East India. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think, I know I think so. It's the it's all the coloured buildings. It's really exciting, absolutely beautiful. I think Ballamore did an incredible job with that one, and then working with amazing clients such as Microsoft and Barclays Bank, and you know, also working internationally in Kuwait and and Egypt. So, really, you've been a busy man, Martin. Incredibly busy, yeah. And in eight years, I I did a lot. But when you're working twelve hours a day, you will. Um, <laughs> You, yeah, you will get really through a lot. Yeah. That, that's kind of what yeah. kind of what, what Ben had said as well about the long hours and so on. So I want to ask you actually about something that you kind of alluded to at the beginning there, whereby you suggested that, like Ben, you had become frustrated with what being an architect was in the common sense, in the day-to-day sense by the sounds of it. What was it to you that was frustrating you about being an architect, something that you'd clearly trained for for a long time and wanted to be when you were younger, I guess. Yeah, I mean, average time to train as an architect is 10 years, and that's to qualify, uh, not to get good. Uh, it takes a little while longer to get good. I'd probably say what I was dissatisfied with was just, um, I just hated, I hated the, the, the kinds of schemes that were coming through the door. I, I didn't really like the process, and the reason I got into architecture was to use my talents in the built environment to improve people's lives. And as you, I, I don't think it, I don't think it was a coincidence either. As I became more senior and I was leading on projects, particularly projects with developers, I was noticing how little control the architect had to basically make the scheme better. 
if the developers during the acquisition stage had gone to, you know, a smaller, a smaller practice to give them a feasibility plan, our job was in some ways to to color that in, you know, flesh it out, get it ready for planning and start there. And what that meant was that some of the fundamentals about the arrangement of space, orientation, sustainability strategy, materiality, even construction, structural frame, a lot of those decisions have been made. That's what had been priced in. You know, if they, they were looking at what their the ballparks were for their construction costs. Yeah, they're, they're tied. So in a nutshell, realizing that the opportunity to actually make an impact was hampered somewhat by sitting in the architectural seat. And that's what drove me to, to, to try and move upstream, as I call it, into development. That makes perfect sense. And you're now in control of your own destiny. Must be a nice feeling. You talked about suburban workshop being a place where you are trying to build great buildings that are great environments for the inhabitants. Who are you targeting? When when you're doing a development, are you going for first-time buyers? Is it as clean as that? Are you going for who are you targeting? Well, to be honest, it depends on location. Like I said, working backwards from lifestyle and who's going to live here, if you're, for example, if you're if you're doing apartments in Cheltenham or a Stratford, Stratford upon Avon, that is rather than Stratford in London, you're probably looking at a large, uh, an older demographic, and that's what you need to factor in. If you're if you're doing, hey, my mum and dad live in Stratford. Be nice. I said probably, not not definitely. So so there are exceptions. <laughs> they are older. <laughs> um, but you're looking at an older demographic. It's not to say that, you know, there are biases about what they like and what they don't like. But what you are saying is that to serve them well, having, if they want to be there a long time, choosing to develop a masonette or a townhouse with lots of stairs probably isn't, probably isn't in their interest in terms of what may serve them or what they how they want to plan their life and, you know, where they want to spend their time and things like that. So it's having that sensitivity. If you're developing a sort of the outskirts of Birmingham, you're looking, you're looking at the Mosley uh, sort of Sturchley, then you're probably looking at your first-time buyers, young professionals, people of that kind. It's not to say that they're exclusive, it's exclusivity, but it varies who you are targeting and it's dependent on the location and the market to answer the question. That's a great answer. Understood. Now, I'm going to ask a question which might seem stupid and a QSE kind of a question. Oh, again. That's, that, that's who I am. <laughs> yeah, I know another one. I know. I've already, I've already done 10 of them. What I can't quite get my head around, having spoken with Ben, now speaking to you, is surely if you're designing, if you're an architect at the outset of a project, designing for the older couple, you say, like my mum and dad in Stratford, or for the first-time buyers in Sturchley, surely at the outset, the approach is always, how am I designing an environment for them? But it seems now that through talking to Ben, through talking to you, through talking to other people, that there's a real sensitivity, using your word, in your approach to designing for them. How is that so different to these more traditional architects, let's say? How, how, how are you doing things differently? Well, as being an architect developer, I pay more attention to, and just to be clear, I I work with architects in my capacity as development director. I'm not doing the drawing. 
I'm directing the design, but I'm not doing the drawing. And so there's a distinction there. But I would say that my being able to wear both hats means I'm having an idea on how the product will perform in the market. I'm also thinking about how it's going to be marketed. I'm also thinking about, it's kind of the age old, really. It's, it's, it's quite often architects, they design what they think is a, is a great scheme, but they haven't done the estate agent's test, which is, if you're an estate agent, how are you going to sell this? And if you've spent any time with estate agents, you know, they view the built, in di- the built environment slightly differently. They're, they're kind of, at their best, they're kind of this really amazing mix of uh, sort of a guy off the street and someone who understands property. And they're able to, I mean, we were discussing just before we started about the key to communication being understanding who you are, who your audience is, and understanding how your audience perceives you. I think a good, good estate agent is precisely is precisely that kind of individual to the point that I like to seek their advice at the very beginning of the process, the very beginning of the design process, because to be honest, they'll know, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to tell you, you know, in some ways they'll say, look, what we're hearing, and this is, you know, firsthand, half of the press's information, I was speaking to a guy yesterday, hates UPVC windows, for example. Yes. And, and yeah, so you're speaking to the agents at the outset. Yeah, at the outset. And it's probably, uh, 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 if I could put my approach probably in simple terms is I'm someone who works from Z back all the way back to A. I tend to start with the optimum outcome and then reverse engineer how we get there from wherever we are. That in my career has saved me a lot of time. It saved me a lot of time. Uh, it's It stopped us going down intellectual design cul-de-sacs. It's really just, it gives you confidence that you're making the right decisions. And once, once you keep coming back to that touchstone, which is, well, if, if Dorothy is going to walk in, is she going to care that we have black taps, for example? Which is, you know, all the rage at the moment. All I'm the assuming moment. Dorothy is your first time buyer. Dorothy, you know, she could be. Uh, Dorothy is often here for, for, for an older lady. Um, but uh, as an older lady, Dorothy doesn't care about black taps. If anything, she might be a little bit annoyed with how difficult they are to, to keep clean. So going with a chrome finish probably makes sense for her. Whereas if you're going with a younger buyer, there's, you know, it's a bit cringy, but there's this idea about things being Instagrammable. It's not necessary that they'll take photos in the bathroom, although that isn't impossible or unlikely. But it's more that there is a, especially with things like Pinterest and stuff, there there are more people, particularly younger people, walking around with a lexicon of ideas and that they think are good design. And so in a way, people are more familiar with what good design looks like, whether it's through Airbnb or, or Pinterest, they know what that looks like. And if you're not matching that, then then you introduce friction into the transaction. I can, t- I can totally see as well. It's really interesting. My brother-in-law is an estate agent, one of the very good ones. He's shown me around different places before and given me a perspective on property that is totally different it may, it's completely painted a different picture as to what i would see so i completely understand that's a really interesting angle of going from z to a as you say to to walk through it well we do things a little bit i'm going to do things a bit back to front as well because i said we were going to talk about esg a bit later on but i'm interested to know because we spoke oh, it's going to feel like months ago now with piragash who is a uh, 
regularly on our show. Um, I think you've spoken to him yourself about ESG from a funding perspective. Great guy, isn't he? Um, Mm. So how does ESG impact what you do now? So ESG is quite nebulous as a topic altogether. I would probably say the way it impacts what I do now is if we take Piragash's episode, I'm not sure which episode that was. Ooh, a long time ago. Um, yeah, so he was talking about it from a funding perspective. And there have actually been a few developments on that front which are quite interesting and you know, some he turned me on to as well. Uh, so one, for example, is I think it's Octopus Real Estate who have just created a partnership with Homes England. And the purpose of the partnership is to assist SME developers in working with Homes England and bringing forward homes. And um, Octopus have a product which effectively gives you, they will remove uh, percentage points of interest on your finance based on hitting, I believe it's an EPC of B and then going above, going above B. I don't know what the integers are. I haven't looked at it in too much detail, but but when you, if we leaning to the starting with Z and working back, you should, if you're doing your job well, you should be thinking about your cost of finance at the very beginning of the process as part of your acquisition and your initial viability appraisal. And if you're, if you know that that, that there's a carrot in that respect for you to be able to secure a lower cost of finance, then right away you're saying that our bill cost might be higher, but the way we position product might be different. And you can start to see how that decision starts to ripple back through all of the different development stages, all of the different development considerations if you're paying attention. So then you're looking at a site and you may be saying, okay, so we can get a lower cost of finance, which means that we, in theory, should be able to afford a higher build cost, which kind of nets out, but we end up with a better product, which we may be able to charge a little bit more for. You always get a new build premium, but now with cost of living going up and energy costs going up, you're going to be able to say this is a low energy home. People don't care necessarily about you know, low carbon or understand it. They care, but they, they might not understand it. But if you're able to say this is a low energy home and you're actually able to say you save X hundred pounds a year by living here, then they start to make calculations. Okay, maybe we can stretch in terms of paying a little bit more it starts to all kind of come together. Yeah. It's fascinating, honestly, as a bit of an outsider to this topic. Just this is why I love doing this podcast. It's fascinating just seeing things evolve, right? Because ESG is something which we talked about months ago, being something you've got to start looking at. You've got to start looking at. There's going to be opportunities there. There's going to be opportunities there to be taken. Um, I can't remember. I'm probably going to completely misremember. But I think it was like September, October. We're having that conversation with Piragash. I remember talking to you about it afterwards, you speaking to Piragash, Piragash saying to me, things are changing, things are evolving. We're now in 2022 and there's more opportunities. So as a developer, really, ESG isn't something to just roll your eyes and think, wow, it's something to focus on, something to see an opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's, It's a macro trend. And to be honest, I feel some sympathy for developers because our job is becoming a lot more technical. I'm not perturbed because I have a very technical background and I have, you know, great experience at all levels of scales and tech and technical difficulties. But if you're traditional SME developer or, you know, you're just starting out, it's it's a tough time. I mean, we've got ninety five months as a species to get to net zero before we're looking at 
an increase. Wow, when you put it like that, it's not long, is it? We've got 95 months before yeah. before we miss the window, um, and we're looking at um, global temperature increases of above 1.5 degrees centigrade. And we've got no time to waste. We've got millions of homes to retrofit. It even if every every home, it's probably also worth saying with regard to ESG that it's not all about the E. There are two other there are two other points, but with regard to the E, we've got the E is the dominant. Is dominant because it's the bit that people understand, but the S, the S and the G are also really important. And that's why I'd probably say if you do care about ESG or you're interested, I would probably say it's what you think it is. Before you get into all of the technical bits and you get into your edge certifications and you get into it's what you think it is if it's environmental it's low energy and good epcs if it's social it's working with the local college it's working with charities if it's governance it's that you set up the behind the scenes stuff that you don't hear a lot of developers talk about your spvs and whatnot and your guarantees and warranties and relationships um but there are advantages to doing this right martin and i'm going to be sat here in three months, in six months, with someone else as equally interesting as you, talking about a further progression in ESG and how it can be of advantage to developers. So you've got to get onto it, guys. You've got to get onto it. But I really hope so. I don't think Oct- I don't think Octopus will be the only ones offering something like what they're offering. So precisely, precisely. But look, we'll go to our break now, Martin, and we'll talk just after that. Own Build is brought to you from our sponsor, C-Link. Software used by developers and main contractors to manage subcontract procurement in one place. Find subcontractors, automate tenders and contracts, control construction program, compare prices, and improve project profitability with C-Link. To find out more, head to c-link.com. Now back to the show. This is the challenge that I face. Talking to interesting people is you don't actually talk about what you set out to talk about sometimes. So I want to scale things back, Martin, to what we advertise effectively at the start of our conversation before we start talking about rural Tunbridge Wells, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to talk to you about how to manage a design team. This is something which I've been involved with in the past on big projects at big design meetings etc etc in my previous life it's something that i now see with my sme clients trying to manage design teams on smaller projects it's incredibly incredibly difficult thing to do lots of moving parts and when we started speaking about it you said you knew how to do it so <laughs> So I'm desperate to speak to you about it and understand to you, first and foremost, who you class as the design team on, on your projects. Who's in there? Mm, yeah, it's a good question. Um, you've got your, your probably your big three, which would be your, your engineer structural, your engineer MEP, and then your architect. Uh, I would consider those to be your core three. To be honest, in terms of legislation, you should also have a principal designer in there as well to comply with CDM regs um, and to make sure that you are making decisions that make sense. 
I'd say that's the traditional conception of a design team. I would include, I think, as you know, we touched on a little bit in the first half, I would include your estate agents, whoever you think you really? you'd want to part. Yeah, I would, because if they say, look, your plan's cool, you know, it's fine, it's pretty standard. But bear in mind, they've looked at a lot of plans quite often, especially if they're in a new homes team. And they say, look, if you if you introduced a, a double, you've said you were thinking about a double height space in this area. If you introduced a double height space in, in, in this area here, as you've proposed, I'm pretty confident. They won't put it in writing, but they say, I'm pretty confident that we can get to the top end of the valleys, for example. And that's a decision that you can make long before you get into the weeds of technical details and where your boiler is going to go and blah, 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 blah. So they can actually start to help you form the product early on. So I would include them, not as a major player. but Do you have, them. sorry to interrupt you there, do you have a relationship? Because that alarm bell is going off in my head as in, wow, that's really innovative. How do you cultivate that relationship with the, an estate agent? to say i want you in early doors because obviously it's gonna be good for us both in the future but it's just a really interesting angle to be honest in the most normal way you should before your when you're doing your initial viability assessment you should be talking to a few agents especially if you're not familiar with the area about what the values are i think because of the the stamp duty holiday there's also a lag between um the values being entered into land registry and what's actually happening in the market and so really your estate agent is your best source after that it's really it's really doing it's really doing what you would for any relationship which is if the energy is right and there seems like mutual alignment and mutual interest that you cultivate that relationship and you and you want to work with them and if they sense you want to work with them and they want to work with you it's actually a really virtuous cycle because you want the best insight in terms of what's really happening in the market, they realize that you're not dicking them around and that if they do a good enough job, that they'll probably be the ones managing that listing. So it's the, there's a lot, lots of alignment there. You're an interesting guy, Crikey. You keep on making me see the world through different eyes. But the big question I have for you now regarding design team is, does the QS get invited to the party? Are you bringing someone with a commercially minded view on that? Uh, fair question. Yeah, I mean, normally, if I do work with a cast consultant, they'll also wear the PM hat as well. The way I like to run it is I, I like to run, I like to run the project um, pretty much from the beginning to planning myself so i'll be the project manager but what i always do is i i always have a, a cost consultant and or pmqs in the room because they what i like to do is get them to prepare a cost plan before you go to planning the reason i do that is so that you don't go into planning with something that you can't deliver and you end up spending lots of time lots of cost with non-material amendments and the like because it just doesn't make sense so i always have them in the room yeah because i was again i was a qs at, at contracting stage so much further down the line and i had project managers who were either incredibly keen to have you in the room or incredibly keen not to have you in the room because they potentially saw the you know you as as a qs being a bit more cost-minded would be the 
Jekyll to the Hyde of the architect. And some <laughs> people wanted that, other people, yeah. other people didn't want that. So, um, but for me, I always thought, God, the project from a commercial aspect runs a lot better with that little savvy uh, Jekyll on your shoulder saying, are we really sure we can afford this? Or So I'm interested as to... I, I, but the, I think i probably say the difference is I'm a good enough designer to not be... Like, you know, I've been through God knows how many VE processes to know what's the most cost-effective way of, of doing things. But I also care enough about design that even with someone who was cost-minded in the room, it doesn't mean that we're going to throw the design in the bin. If you aren't design-orientated, I would I would say constantly having someone in the corner of the room saying um, budget, budget, budget is probably going to make you it'll move you into a state of mind, which is probably more about fear and it's more defensive rather than offensive what you can. It'll be more about what you can't do rather than what you can do. That's one of the ways that I differ from probably people with other backgrounds in the development space. Um, and you're going into these meetings with the idea of like a can-do attitude, right? You're bringing in the estate agent to say, where can we get these double height ceilings? Not where can we scale back? Where can we scale back? Because you want someone to walk through the door and say oh i want to stretch my budget because this is the place that i want to buy yes partially so i'm a pragmatist at heart and i have been around the block long enough to know that that's that can sometimes be the highway to hell the way i do things is i i i try to design buildings like i do cars so what do i mean by that so when you design a car you don't you literally don't reinvent the wheel do you you know it's got four wheels you know, it's got an axle, you know, it's got a drivetrain, you know, it's got an engine, you know, it needs front and rear headlights, you know, it's got a steering wheel and a windscreen. If you know all of the things that you just need as a standard, and they are standardized, you lock them down and you get them in. Anyone who knows anything about cars knows that the, the biggest area of difference is your interior and your chassis, and then arguably your infotainment system. But we will... But Actually, the metaphor works because you are having things more like infotainment systems in buildings now, which are like building OS. Yeah, like your AV and whatever. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, so so you you know that that the the point of differentiation sits within that area. So that's where you should focus your time. I know there's a question down here. Where I'm probably jumping the gun about how do I how do I compress your design period down? That would be one of the ways that I would suggest to listeners that you do it. If you're designing a house or apartments, there's virtually 80% of what you're doing that's been done before. Look at the best version and replicate it. If it's been built and it works what you and it's compliant. Well, so for example, you shouldn't have to guess how wide your stairs are. There are God knows how many house types in the world if you're not trying to infringe on copyright. Start at the pace where someone else has stopped. Go around, look at your friends' houses, look at new developments, go on Dazine, go on Pinterest, go on all of these places where there are examples of incredible design that has been done well and start there. From there, then you start to tweak around the edges about the things that make your product unique. If you're in the Cotswolds, there's no point using bread brick. You're probably going to be using the stone, but there are lots of different ways to use the stone. There are lots of different ways, you know, whether it's an ashlar or it's a tumbled or, you know, whatever it is, you know, the way you're going to use the tile, you know what it's going to be. The expression is different. So don't waste your time arguing about what the material is going to be, argue about how you're going to express it, what your windows like, what your doors like, things like that. That is very clear. 
and we're talking stage one to stage three to right in this moment which is let's call it the planning period your design team there is you got your big three in there your architect services engineer structural engineer you've also got your estate agent in at points for a touch point some reference and at times qs slash project manager potentially in there as well how do you see that period in terms of time you've talked now about compressing it with 80 percent is kind of standardized to some degree how long do you think that period of time should take from stage one to three so i have to give you the crappy response which is it depends but if we if we go through the scales if you're talking about uh if we start with the low scale which is your houses uh if you're talking about houses and you're looking at free house types for example that should be weeks. That should be two or three weeks, really. If you're looking at apartments, bear in mind that apartments are 50% optimum position and then 50% site constraints. If you're talking about apartments, to be honest, you're, you, you should be looking at a month for all of that. And then maybe for new build apartments, yeah. For existing, it's a little bit more complicated, but in some ways, all of the walls are in place as well. And a good architect could do it in an evening in terms of what's possible and what's not. So you're looking at weeks, not months, for the most part. Um, I think if you're spending months, you're taking too long. And I think there's there's a conversation worth having as someone who sat on both sides of the fence as a client developer and then also as a consultant. Consultants will moan with lots of changes at the same time they aren't necessarily averse to a process taking longer than it needs to because they can build more, assuming you have that kind of relationship. I was going to say, because these those, those durations you're talking about, Martin, sound fantastic to, if I was talking to some of my clients who are developers, and I, trust me, I want them to get on with their projects. I like the sound of those, that, that period. What have you seen in your career where you have thought that is something which is regularly done wrong in that initial design period so that you're not talking about weeks, you're talking about months? Um, Ooh, big breath. Yeah, because there's, <laughs> there's lots of things. Because I've, 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 I've been in that seat. To be honest, I'd probably say the biggest one is, not, is what I was saying before, which is not starting with what works. And also probably not being honest about what's possible. You should oversize, especially in the early stages. You should start with a baggy. You should start with a baggy feasibility. Stage one, you should have, you know, between five and ten percent float in terms of uh, your GIA. Why? Because MEP is going to come in. And they're going to shoehorn in MVHR. They're going to shoehorn in risers. They're going to shoehorn in structural columns. They're going to shoehorn in, if you're unlucky and you haven't thought about it, an extra staircase. If you're doing, if they're shoehorning those things in at stage two, three, you're basically a long way away from what you were underwriting during your viability appraisal. Um, and that's when things start to get hairy. So I'd say is the thing that I see done wrong often is very optimistic feasibility plans with virtually no tolerance for the changes, which if you've been in my, you know, sat in my seat, you've seen happen time and time again. And it's just stress after that. Beyond stage three, 
once you're moving through to stage four and i'm trying to get the qs back involved you see so as you then move away from the more conceptual design into the more technical and construction based design does the team evolve does the mentality evolve at that stage because you've at stage one to three created this amazing concept you've got the right people in so you're thinking about z y x you're thinking about the very latter stages when you're in the thick of it when you really think about build technical details how does the team evolve does your mentality evolve the reality is if you're doing it well it shouldn't and you should be thinking about stages four five and six during one two and three i'd probably say if i could say anything to the listeners that's why i'd say you need to be imagining where you because there's basically a kind of there's basically a point in time and this is something that i've 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 has always annoyed me about working with certain consultants all of them of all stripes and even clients as well where they think they think the scheme is what's on the paper and it's not the scheme that's on the paper is an abstraction of reality and at some point in time to use a, an expression, that shit gets real. And you should be preparing for when that shit gets real. And there are various points, particularly from a developer side, where things get real. One point, for example, is when you go to tender. This is why, so you said you want to get the QS back in. I can tell you where I tend to want cost advice. Cost advice at the very beginning in terms of, you know, a ballpark for build costs during your initial appraisal. Costs, advice and oversight, light touch throughout stages one to three. Cost plan before you go into planning. Uh, so effectively you wanna take off from your stage two and then you'll probably want that to come back. And one of two things will happen. It will come back higher than you originally, than you really want it to be. And then you have to adjust what you submit to planning, but that's fine because you haven't submitted it. If you do it the opposite way, which is you submit it and then you get it costed, then you need to then you need to amend your planning and that's a ball lake. So you have your QS, check it just before you go into planning and you either pump the brakes and you change tact, which is probably the right thing to do if you need to, or you move forward with some skepticism because you're only doing a takeoff from a stage two pack with some skepticism that there could be growth. Yeah, so, so you should be coming in in terms of your target below where you would originally allowed for, ideally, ideally. Negotiations take place. Then your QS should come in again after planning when you start to do your stage four. And there are basically, this is something which isn't spoken about very often, but basically there are two, there are two stages to stage four. What's what, there's what I call stage 4A and stage 4B. And stage 4A is, is, is your technical design, which has been done by your design team without cost input this is our and this is based on the cost plan you did before planning you do that and then and then you get that appraised and then you adjust your tact again so you change where you're aiming for on the horizon if you're into sailing and you adjust and you make sure you are still hitting that and then you've got your real stage four which is what you should really be going to tender with with the understanding that you're probably going to need to value engineer it once it comes back anyway depending on and this is this is why timing's important because if you spent six months in stages one to three in the way the current market is, that's enough time for labor costs, material costs, 
interest rates to have all changed by the time you start thinking about going to tender. And that's why time is so important. And that's why thinking about or working back from stage four, stage five is so important. And that's why that short design phase between one and three is absolutely critical to everything you do. Martin, I, I will go back to what Ben said to me last week about you should speak to Martin because he's an interesting guy. I think that was an understatement. I have genuinely uh, enjoyed speaking to you. We've covered everything. I've even taught you about Royal Tunbridge Wells, you know, <laughs> so I'll take that. But it's really, yeah. uh, really been absolutely amazing to have you on the show. I'll share details in the podcast description about Martin, about Suburban Workshop. Look them up. Really like everything that you're doing, Martin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And Thanks uh, so much for having me, Paul. I'm sure we will speak again very soon. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Martin. Take care, mate. See you. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye.